Thanks for tuning in to the Calvary Now podcast. At Calvary, our mission is to set people's hope in God and engage in the mission of God. Right now, we're in our Advent series, where we look at how Jesus is our hope, peace, joy, and love. Can we just thank God for those who've been baptized this morning once more? You know, it just doesn't, it, it, it just is so incredible to see, to be reminded of what God does in the lives of people as they respond through baptism and put on display their trust in Christ and in Christ alone. Man, we're so excited for them. We're so excited for their families. Well, listen, if you have your Bible this morning, I wanna encourage you to turn with me to John's gospel, uh, to John chapter three, this doing, the, um, John chapter three, I can say it, this morning. All right, as you're doing so, let me remind you of two really important things that we have going on this month as a church. As you know, or as most of you know, we are right in the middle of receiving our global missions offering with a goal of a million dollars. And I'm excited to tell you that halfway through the month, we are almost halfway toward our goal, having received over $470,000 as of yesterday. Can we thank God for that this morning? Listen, thank you for your generosity. I want you to have complete confidence that everything you give goes directly to, into the hands of our primary sending partners, the International Mission Board, the North American Mission Board, uh, our state convention that really goes to fuel church planning efforts, equipping efforts all across our city and all across the world. And so every dollar that you give goes to support that. And I'm gonna keep saying it all the way through this month leading up to Christmas. I wanna encourage you to give your largest single gift this year more than to your wife or to your husband, your, to your family, your largest gift this year to see the gospel go forward to the nations um, through the global missions offering. So that's number one. Number two, as you know, next Sunday is Christmas Eve. And man, it's hard to believe. As Chad said, we're just eight short days away. For those of you who are doing a rush of last minute shopping, it's go time for you, all right? You need to get this done. And I want you to be aware that next week we have adjusted our service times to make it a little easier for your families, but most importantly, to make it a little easier for you to invite friends and families and neighbors to join you. We believe Christmas Eve is one of those strategic times where people's hearts are open and sensitive to what God is doing. And so we wanna encourage you to invite them to come. And so next Sunday, our service times are shifting. We will not have our 9 a.m. service, but we will have a 10.30 a.m. service and a 3 p.m. service here at our Peace Haven campus. At our West campus, we'll have no morning services, but a 3 p.m. and a 5 p.m. service. Those services are virtually identical. And so I would say to you, whichever fits best your rhythm, whichever is easiest for you to invite someone to come with you to be a part of, come to that service. They're gonna be family services, which means they're built with kids in mind. They're, they're arranged that way. We're gonna have a gift bags and activity bags for all the kids when they get here. So if you have younger children, it's gonna be a great, great morning together. So I hope that you'll make every effort to make your Christmas Eve tradition a part of that, being here to worship with the Calvary family. So now, 
If you've been here over the last few weeks, you know that we are right in the middle of our Advent series. I've shared with you multiple times that Advent's a season uh, of four weeks leading up to Christmas where Christians all over the world kind of pause and reflect upon the unusual and awe-inspiring circumstances around the birth of the Messiah there in Bethlehem. And as they look and remember what Christ has done, it's also a time of hopeful anticipation as people not only remember what Christ has done, but look forward to his glorious return in the future. And as a church... We've been looking at the Bible's teaching around the birth of Christ, and as we've done so, we've been reflecting on the traditional Advent themes of hope and peace and joy. We talked about how biblical hope is a confident expectation that God will, in fact, keep his promises, that as God's people, we're able to look back and remember what Christ has done while also looking forward and anticipating his return, which gives us hope in the midst of the world that we find ourselves in today that can often be chaotic and challenging and difficult. We talked about how we can experience peace and that one of our greatest or our greatest need is the fact that we are at enmity with God. But when the angels appeared to the shepherds there on that hillside the night that Christ was born, they said to him, fear not, or to them, fear not, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And we know that through Christ's finished work, we can have peace with God, that enmity is broken. And now through that, we can fulfill what God has called us to do, which he challenged us to in Matthew chapter five, when he says, blessed are those who are peacemakers. We now can go and be peacemakers. But then last week, we also talked about joy, how we looked at a cultural vision of joy that says joy and happiness is found in the right circumstances, the right circumstances and experiences that we convince ourselves that make life worth living. But we ultimately talked about how unsatisfying that is in the long term, and there's a biblical vision of joy that results in an inner peace and rest based upon what we know to be true. And so even in the midst of life's most trying circumstances, we can experience joy in Christ. Well, this morning, as we're going to consider the Advent theme of love, of love. Now, I think we'd all agree that we throw around the word love pretty easily. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my parents. I love my siblings. I love my church. I love you people. I love NC State, as disappointing as they are to me. They do not love me in return, but I love them. I love NC State. I love beautiful golf courses. I love great books. And that's part of the challenge, right? When it comes to talking about love, we often use this word to refer to a lot of different things. I mean, let's be honest. If I say, I love you to Julie, and to her, that means the same thing as me saying, man, I love playing golf with my buddies. Man, things aren't gonna go real well in the Tiburon household, right? So if we're gonna talk about love in light of Advent, I think we'd be well served to make sure we actually understand what the Bible teaches. And I think to gain the most clarity around what the Bible teaches is to do something similar to what we did last week. For us to look at, well, what does a cultural vision say love is? And how does that compare to what the Bible actually teaches about what love is? 
And so I wanna begin by really, before we even read the scripture, I wanna begin by giving you what I think is a cultural vision, a cultural definition of love. And if you're a note taker, I'd encourage you to write this down. Our culture says this is what love is. That love is unconditional affirmation and celebration. That this is what love is. Love is unconditional affirmation and celebration. The agenda our culture has when it comes to love is, in the end, to unconditionally affirm and celebrate who you are. And that fits well with the worldview, the dominant worldview that we see today of expressive individualism. And we've talked about that in good, a good bit over these recent months. How the world will tell us in this worldview, if you really want to find yourself, it's not to look outside of you at some transcendent truth. The way to find yourself is to actually look inside. It's to look inside to figure that out. It's a worldview where all truth is self-determined, and it's based primarily on feelings. It's based primarily on personal preference. So in the end, listen, our culture's vision for love is that everyone's quest for self-expression be celebrated. That whatever your expression is of self, the culture would say, you affirm that, you celebrate that. And we see that all around us, some in really clear ways and obvious ways, and maybe others in like less obvious ways. But we see that kind of penetrating our culture in a variety of ways. We see it in parenting. You watch and you hear often parents who are unwilling to discipline their children or to offer correction to their children. They're often motivated primarily by this desire to affirm them and to not fracture in the moment a child's self-esteem. And so to love is just to affirm that and not create any sort of correction or discipline there. We see it, I think, seep into a culture where it's very difficult, and we find in many instances an unwillingness to call wrong things wrong or evil things evil. You know, we saw in the news a couple, of, maybe a little over a week ago, and let me be clear, I don't think this is the only thing at play here, but I think it's part of what's at play here. In a culture where university presidents of leading institutions who were asked a question about whether or not it would be a violation of the student code of conduct if a student were calling for the genocide of a Jewish people to be unwilling to kind of emphatically and categorically say that is wrong. I think you see the bleeding of this kind of cultural vision of love kind of seeping in. And again, I, don't, I think there's a lot more at play than that. But I think it's part of the conversation. We see it in our cult, one of our culture's mantras that love is what? Love. Well, just love is love. Well, what does love is love mean? When you hear love is love, here's what that means. Ultimately, functionally, love is love means you affirm me at whatever cost. To love me is to affirm me. To love me is to affirm my expression. To love me is to affirm that quest to self-express. I've heard it described like this. For most people, to be loved is to be made much of. We're taught in a thousand ways that love means increasing someone's self-esteem. Love 
is helping someone feel good about themselves. And then I thought this was a really challenging statement. Love is giving someone a mirror and helping him or her like what he sees. That's a cultural vision of love. It's handing him a mirror. It's putting up in front of him and say, okay, I'm going to help you like what you see there. That's a cultural vision of love. Now, it's important to note that in our not-so-distant past, we often hear, well, you do you and I'll do me and that's fine. In in our culture, the response we often hear, though, is if you don't affirm me, you hate me. If you don't affirm me, you hate me. Any disagreement or lack of affirmation is seen as a direct affront to a person's identity. identity. So invariably, people will respond with something like, you either affirm me or you hate me. And I want to say to us, listen, friends, As followers of Christ, as Christians, we can do neither. We can do neither. It was Alistair Begg who I thought said it so well. The Christian does neither. We do not hate, but nor do we affirm. We cannot hate because of God's word, and we cannot affirm because of God's word. We have to be prepared to say that we're unprepared to rewrite the Bible in order to accommodate a society that needs the Bible and the Jesus that is the focus of the Bible. We must be prepared to say that we're unprepared to rewrite God's word, to accommodate a society that needs the Bible and that needs the Jesus of the Bible. Which leads to our text this morning, when John records for us an encounter that Jesus has with a religious man, a religious man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him at night in the veil of of secrecy to talk to Jesus. He wants to understand a little bit more about who he is. And as we read our text this morning, what we discover is that Jesus neither affirms him, nor does he hate him. In fact, through his response and the teaching of God's word, I think we really begin to get clarity around, well, this is what it really means then, to love. Let's look at what the scripture says in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 17 this morning. If you don't have your Bible, uh, then I'm going to put the words up here on the screen, and you can follow along with me there. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi... We know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter into the womb of his mother and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Verse nine, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. 
If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we humbly ask and humbly acknowledge that we are here and we are listening. Speak to us now through your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me. God, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my own heart would be pleasing in your sight. Father, as we come to what might be, for some of us, a familiar passage of Scripture, Lord, I pray that even in the midst of the familiarity, Lord, there'd be an openness and a receptivity to hear afresh and anew. God, what you want to say to us today as we strive to understand the love that has been displayed to us, that changes us. Father, I pray for those who are here, who are wrestling this morning, who are asking questions about who is Jesus and what did he come to do? Lord, I pray that it would be clear today, God, to them, and I pray that they would respond in faith and repentance. And Father, for those of us who are already believers, I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in us, that we might be obedient to whatever it is you're calling us to do, however you're calling us to respond. Father, I want to pray for Pastor Ryan this morning as he preaches at our West Campus. I want to pray, God, for Pastor Samuel, for our pastors that are Hispanic in our Corinthian congregations this morning. Father, we pray for the churches in our community as they gather today. Lord, I think especially of our friends at Two Cities who are gathering in their new facility today. Lord, I pray that you would do a great work through them and through our church, through churches in our community. God, that people far from God would be brought near. Lord, that this city might be changed for the glory of God. Do it here in our church and do it all across the landscape of our community. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, church family, let me set for you the context. Remember, Nicodemus has come at night. He wants to probably avoid being associated with Jesus, but he's nonetheless curious about who he is, right? So he comes and he acknowledges that along with his peers, they see something unique about Christ. Verse two says, Rabbi, notice what he says, we know. We collectively know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But notice what Jesus does. I find this fascinating. Jesus doesn't affirm him. He doesn't affirm Nicodemus, not at all. Rather, he says to him, you're curious, Nicodemus, and I get it. You've seen signs and wonders and I understand this. Nicodemus, you need, you must be born again. Now, when I stop and I think about this, I think to myself, man, if anyone could have been affirmed by Jesus, it seems to me that it would be someone like Nicodemus, right? I mean, he's a religious man. He's a law-abiding man. He's virtuous. He's a pillar of his community. In a very real sense, you might expect Jesus to look at him and say, man, you are crushing it. Just keep up what you're doing. 
I just want to affirm you in who you are. But he doesn't. And not only does he not affirm Nicodemus, he confronts him with what he really needs. Because what Nicodemus really needs is not to figure out how to be more religious. What Nicodemus needs is to be spiritually reborn. And here's a point I want to make sure we understand this morning. Unconditional affirmation, a cultural view of love, unconditional affirmation that directly contradicts God's design for someone's life is not what's best for them. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's the most unkind and unloving thing we could ever do. It's just to affirm someone without giving them the truth and giving them the hope of the gospel. I've heard it described like this, to make someone feel good about themselves when they are made to feel good about seeing and savoring God is like taking them to the Alps with all the beauty and majesty of the Alps. It's like Alps. It's like taking them to the Alps and locking them in a room full of mirrors. It's not kind. And in the end, ultimately, it's not loving. And so what we find is that Jesus has something much different in mind for Nicodemus, and it's not his affirmation. Church family, it's his transformation. It's his transformation. He wants to see Nicodemus spiritually reborn, to move from spiritual death to life, to be conformed into the image and likeness of Christ, understanding that it's in Christ that we experience hope and peace and joy. And so instead of hopelessly and aimlessly walking through this life, looking for salvation from within, we discover that salvation actually comes through Christ. And that's what he means when he says to him, listen, you must be born again. And yet what we find in Nicodemus is that he just doesn't get it. I mean, I would have loved to have been a little bit of a fly on the wall because based upon his questions, you can tell, man, he's pretty confused, right? He's like, well, wait a minute. Verse four, Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus is like, listen, it's not physical rebirth, Nicodemus. It's, spirit, it's a spiritual one. And that's why Jesus says in verse five, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And then Jesus, then Jesus is like, hey, Nicodemus, how can you not understand this? I mean, you're a teacher of the law. I mean, you're a religious leader. I mean, you're the one that all of Israel is looking to, to guide them and to shepherd them into truth. And, I can, and then Jesus begins to help him see what he really means by pointing him back to a story that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with, a story. And Jesus is gonna help him see. It's a story that helps him see that everything in the Old Testament is now pointing forward to him. Everything in the Old Testament is, is pointing forward to when Christ would come and sacrifice his life on the cross. He appeals to a story that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. Look with me at verse 14, where the scripture says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Say, so, well, what's he talking about? Nicodemus would have been very familiar about an account that happened in Numbers chapter 21. 
And back in Numbers chapter 21, we see part of Israel's, the people of Israel's history recorded for us. And what we find is that Israel is in the wilderness. And remember, as we studied Exodus, we've seen that God do some pretty extraordinary things. He's seen, we've seen him bring plagues and the parting of the sea, and they've seen a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. We've seen victories over their enemies. But once again, we find them in Numbers chapter 21 complaining. They're just complaining. They're like, man, things would have been better off for us back in Egypt. And so God says, all right, enough is enough. And God brings judgment on the people of Israel. And that judgment comes in the form of venomous snakes that he sends among them. And people are now dying as a result of it. And so the people of Israel, they come to Moses and they begin begging him. They're like, Moses, listen, you've got to do something about this. You've got to cry out to God and beg him to take them away. And so Moses prays and then the Lord responds. And the scripture says in Numbers 21, verses eight and nine, then the Lord said to Moses, make a snake, and put it up on a pole. And anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And so Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone who was bitten by a snake and looked up at the bronze snake, he lived. Now I wonder, I have to wonder how many times Nicodemus had taught that story. How many times he'd reflected on it. He knew it. Like he had it recorded for him. And I wonder what's going through his mind when Jesus looks at him and he says, hey, Nicodemus, you remember when Moses did that and God saved anyone who looked at him? He said, that's what I'm getting ready to do. That's what's gonna happen when I am lifted up, that whoever believes in me will have eternal life. He's saying, listen, I'm gonna be lifted up on a cross so that all who look to me, all who believe in me will have eternal life and will be born again. And church family, I cannot say this strongly enough. We cannot fully grasp all that's meant by the Messiah being born in the cradle if we don't see the Messiah lifted up on the cross. He was born in the cradle to go to the, to the cross. And in the very next verse, we read what might arguably be the most famous words in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, as we look at this encounter with Nicodemus and the clear teaching of scripture here in John three sixteen, I think perhaps now, now we can begin to get a biblical understanding, a biblical vision for love. A biblical vision for love is not unconditional affirmation and celebration. A biblical vision for love is this. Love is an unconditional and sacrificial commitment for the good of others. It's an unconditional and sacrificial commitment for the good of others. And listen, I prayed this earlier. I prayed it when I was praying with you. You know, one of, my, one of the things I thought, I was like, man, John three sixteen. that's like the most familiar verse in all the world. Every single one of us probably could get pretty close to repeating it. We've seen it under Tim Tebow's eyes. You know, we see it on signs at football games and we see it all over the place, right? But there's a real danger, I think, and a tendency at times to lose our awe in the familiar. So I want to say to you, don't let that be this morning. 
Rejoice again and again at the power of these words as if you're hearing them for the first time as we see and think deeply about the love of God, this unconditional and sacrificial commitment for the good of others. I wanna take John 3.16 and I just want us to look and meditate for a moment on these words and let them resonate in our hearts again and let us reflect upon the length to which God has loved us. For God so loved. Don't rush past this part. For God. I mean, we could stop right there and mine the depths of those words, those riches for a long, long time. That there is a God. And this God created all things. Through his word, he created all things. And all things are created by him and are held together by him. And what we know to be true from the clear teaching of scripture is that this God is ruling and reigning over all of his creation and everything, everything is working towards his redemptive purposes in Christ Jesus, everything. And so that gives us confidence. And I wanna say to you, it's a little uh, extra today. That means whatever happens in your life today is not outside of the sovereign rule and reign of God. Nothing, nothing is gonna happen to you that he is not keenly aware of. Nothing is gonna transpire for God. For God so loved, he initiates this love and it's rooted in his character, in his nature, it's who he is. So when you think back upon God, in all of eternity past, the uncreated God who creates all things before he created, there he is, fully complete in the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, perfectly loving one another. God the Father loving the Son and the Spirit and the Son loving the Father and the Spirit and the Spirit loving the Father and loving the Son. There in perfect love with one another. And God initiates that love towards us rooted in his character. For we see, for God so loved, what church? The world, the world. What's the object of God's love? It's the world, it's mankind. It's mankind that rebelled against him in the garden when Adam and Eve said, we'd rather reject your rule and authority and seek to live for ourselves under our own rule and authority. It's the one who loved the ones whose hearts, the scriptures say, are deceitfully wicked and who seek only to serve themselves. It's the ones whose hearts are darkened, who don't look for God and are deserving of judgment. I can't help but think when, for God so loved the world, and I think of what the scripture says in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, that, that the, Paul describes us like this, and it's kind of harsh to hear, but he says, listen, you're children of wrath, sons of disobedience, following the prince of the power of the air. And then we read in verse 4, those beautiful words, but God, but God, rich in mercy sends his son for us who dies ultimately for us. And listen, here's what that means. And here's what I pray you'll hear. When you hear the words for God so loved the world, it means that you are the object of God's love. For God so loved you, God has set his affections on you. I have to believe, I have to believe that there are some here this morning that you're thinking to yourself, oh, Will, how I wish and pray that would be true. That those words could be true of me. 
But you're convinced, you're absolutely convinced that God only loves those who he deems worthy of his love. And when you look at your life, when you look at your experiences, you're saying to yourself, there's no way. If he knew me, he couldn't love me. Not with what I've done. Not with the decisions that I've made. Not with the people that I've hurt. Not with the pain that I have caused. And I wanna say to us all this morning, listen, for God so loved the world, he's loved all of us. And there is not a person sitting here under earshot of my words that doesn't sit here in Christ as a trophy of God's grace. Every single one of us are undeserving of it. And yet he has set his love on us. We're the object of his love. And then he says, he helps us to see the extent of that love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You see, love is not just an emotion. It's not something I just feel towards someone. It's an unconditional and sacrificial commitment to the good of others. It's action that God takes. This love that God has for us is expressed in the fact that God, who is under no obligation to us, gave his one and only son. And when it says that he gave his son, it's pointing to the cross. It's a love that expresses itself, church, family, and sacrifice. We read it, we quote it, be verses worth committing to memory. And in Romans 5, verse eight, the scripture says, but God demonstrates his love for us demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What's the demonstration of his love? It's in his death on the cross for us. We read in places like 1 John chapter four, where the scripture says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's the atoning sacrifice. If you're reading the ESV, I quoted the NIV when I put that up on the screen, but the ESV that I normally read out of, it says it's not the atoning sacrifice. It says that he is the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation, that's a big church word, but can I tell you something? When you read those words in the Bible, they're really important. I understand that feels like a church word, but can I tell you what that means? The word propitiation simply means that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God towards us. It's satisfied in Christ Jesus. He is the atoning sacrifice. He is the propitiation. He's the one who satisfied that wrath towards us. You wanna know what his love is like? That's what his love is like. Jesus, as he's nearing his death on the cross in John chapter 12, he says, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But then Jesus of his own accord says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And then in verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up, there it is again, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show what kind <coughs> of death he was going to die. Listen, Calvary family, this love says, I am not going to unconditionally affirm you. This love says, I love you too much to leave you where you are. 
yet I am so committed to your good that I'll sacrifice everything and die in your place. And the effect of that, the result of that, when we look to him, is that we shall not perish, the scripture says, but have eternal life. Eternal life in the future and an abundant life in the present. It means that we've been united with Christ. As Paul would remind us in Ephesians chapter one, we've been united with Christ and we experience all the rights and privileges of being united with Christ, adopted, forgiven, redeemed. We become heirs of Christ. I've told you one of my favorite passages of scripture to study at Christmas when it comes to the birth of Christ is found in Galatians chapter four, which says in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of woman, born under the law to redeem those of us who are under the curse of the law that we might receive adoption as sons. Now that we might be able to cry out to him, Abba, Father, and he says, listen, you're no longer slaves, but you're sons. You're sons of the most high God. This is his love for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him, whoever looks to him and believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And when we come to know the love of God and experience it deeply, that changes us. The love we received is the love we can now give. Now we too can make unconditional and sacrificial commitments to one another for the good of others. You know, when you read the bookends of what I read in 1 John 4, the verses right before that and right after it say this, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And then he says in verse 11, dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. And that includes those those who don't love us back, those who are hard to love. Listen, loving people who love you back is easy. That's not hard. It's loving the unloving, the undeserving, the ungrateful. You see, when we understand that we were once enemies of God, that we were unlovely, unlovely and undeserving, through the love of Christ, we can now make sacrifices for our enemies, for those in our lives who are least deserving, the ungrateful in our lives. Now we can give our lives in a way because we're in Christ and nothing can take our lives away. We have him. You see, biblical love is an unconditional and sacrificial commitment for the good of others. Before we close, can I, can I share this with you? Have you noticed this? Maybe you picked up on it. When you started thinking about a cultural vision of love that says love is just an unconditional affirmation and celebration, have you noticed that a cultural vision of love doesn't require that you really sacrifice anything for the good of others? It doesn't require that. Kevin DeYoung, a pastor in Charlotte, said it well. He said, what does unconditional affirmation require of you by way of sacrifice? Nothing. All it requires is a wave of the hand. Whatever you do, I'm fine. However you live, that's fine. The problem with unconditional affirmation is not that it is too lavishly loving, but that it is not nearly loving enough. 
When God tells us to love our brothers, he means more than saying, I'm okay, you're okay, whatever you do is fine, and I don't judge. To really love your brother is to lay down your life for him. It requires you to die to yourself, which may mean a sacrifice of time, a sacrifice of reputation, and a sacrifice of your comfort. And then this phrase hit me like a ton of bricks. Unconditional affirmation only asks that you sacrifice your principles. You hear that? The only sacrifice you make in unconditional affirmation is the principles that you've rooted your life in and that you hold dear. That's the only sacrifice. But when we understand a biblical vision of love, we understand what Christ has done for us now, we can lay down our lives and sacrifice our time and our reputation and our comfort for the good and flourishing of others. Biblical love is an unconditional and sacrificial commitment to the good of others perfectly seen in Christ and now through the power of the Spirit can be given through us for the good of other people. Amen. Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Now podcast. We desire that Calvary would be a place of belonging and hope where no one wants alone. If you're not already, we would love for you to join us in person at either of our campuses on Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. For more information, visit us at calvarynow.com.